Rick Z Show. I'm your host, Dan Vivian, sitting in for Rick Z, who couldn't be here, mainly because he's over there. I'm over here. <laughs> Again, today's guest. Welcome to the show, Rick. Great to have you on this part two of the Rick Z story. Oh, thanks, Dan. Thanks for hosting. Uh, it's really, again, kind of strange to be sitting on this side, but it's fun. It is. A quick bit of history. The alliance between Rick and I goes way back to the late 80s when we both attended Marist College, and our musical trajectory kind of overlapped as a result. We ended up forming the Rick Z Band with John Coghill on guitar and Carl Allwire on bass. I played drums, and in that particular incarnation, we lasted from 1988 or so till 1997. And the story of that band could probably be its own show, and maybe in the future. I know Carl was one of the first guests on the Rick Z Show. Although I left Rick's band in 1997, we continued working together after a brief hiatus. And the work continues to this day with albums like Otis and Melvin's High on Cake, as well as Rick's nascent new album. Another thing that I should mention... For those of you who don't know, for all kinds of reasons, a pre-interview is usually conducted before most talk shows or podcasts like this one. When I agreed to host, Rick and I both thought it might be nice not to do any preparation beforehand, and so what you hear are the real, off-the-cuff, top-of-his-head answers. I want to begin not with a question, but an observation. The Rick Z Show hit the ground running about almost a year ago, I think. And in that time, you have amassed a bumper crop of compelling interviews from all kinds of Hudson Valley people. I would be remiss if I didn't give everybody involved with the show a shout out and a big thumbs up. What do you say? Oh, that's uh, great. Thank <laughs> you. Yeah. We'll dub in some applause there, maybe. Okay. <clears throat> some crickets, maybe. Yeah. <laughs> we've used them before. <laughs> and we've even driven the crickets away. Yes, we have. Which uh, we, we got that going for us. <laughs> Let's get right down to it. Rick, you have been a local music artist since the late 80s, early 90s. If you could start again, knowing what you know now, would you still have chosen music as a pursuit? Oh, yes, yeah. I would have chosen a different place to do it, but I would have chosen music, yeah, absolutely. I mean, with the collapse of the music industry, both globally and locally, that adds to the challenge, correct? It definitely adds to the challenge, but it doesn't really change what excites me and what comes naturally for me. Were you looking to join a band when the Rick Z bands kind of fell together? Yes and no. I hadn't really thought about it much. I pictured myself in like a rock and roll band. I had been picturing that my whole life. But I actually needed the Rick Z band I thought I did to kind of legitimize myself and have a band because I was going into the studio for the very first time and the studio owner, Paul Antonell, said to me, well, you, you have a band, right? Just bring them in. And I said, well, of course I have a band, you know. <laughs> you know what you? Yeah. And I, of course I didn't. And I had to get one real quick because uh, I was like a couple of weeks away from going in there and meeting Paul. I wanted to have a band by then. So I started looking. Mm-hmm. So was it organic or was it something you wanted to assemble? I mean, you needed to you needed a band for the studio, but uh, if if you didn't have uh, John and Carl already, were you going to go hold auditions or were you going to? I don't think I really had a plan, to be honest with you. I didn't really know what I was doing at that time. I was just kind of drifting around, writing songs, and I didn't have any kind of fleshed out plan. But I knew a couple of guys that I had just met. John Coghill and Carl Allwire, and they knew each other already. They were in a campus band, and they were clearly very good. I I would watch them play, and I never had known such instinctual musicians before that, that were great technicians, too. They were the real deal, and I knew it. And I thought, there's no way these guys are going to work with me. 
That was my, my first thought. There was one thing I had in my corner. I was going into the studio, and these guys were hungry for experience too, and I think they were impressed with the fact that I, I had a studio date booked, uh, and that really helped to hook them. And then, of course, I had to show them some material. My impression is that they admired that somebody could write a song that actually sounded like a song. I think they thought that it might be something they could put their own original stamp on, which, of course, they did. So I was lucky. I, I had some things that they may have wanted or that appealed to them that I could kind of sucker them in, sucker them into my world. Those of us who choose music, either as a career or a side hustle, inevitably end up at odds with our parents. You know, that can hurt because all we really want is for our folks to approve of what we do. What did your parents think of your decision not to pursue an education and go into music instead? Uh, well, uh, they weren't too happy, <laughs> actually, <laughs> because I was given a free education, and I think they saw this as me turning down a free education. I think at that time I saw it as me freeing up a free education for somebody that wanted it. I only wanted an education in music and not the schooled kind. Get out in, in the club scene and start swimming, that kind. And I think my parents thought that was ill-advised, which of course it is. You know, as an adult, I look back on all that now and I think, well, yeah, that was maybe not a great idea. And if you ignore all good advice, you're probably a musician. So I, I think I was heading in the right direction, but it, it couldn't possibly have looked that way to anybody, especially a parent. I'm not sure I would encourage my child to do it. And if they defied that advice, then, you know, they're probably heading in the right direction too. Uh, so it, it's, a, it's a weird kind of thing. But no, they weren't terribly supportive at first. I think they must have thought I just had delusions of grandeur or I watched too much MTV or something like that. <laughs> it was over time they understood the commitment that I made to it and, and grew to respect it. And now I think they understand. The average person walks into a club and, and sees a band playing or maybe a solo artist with a guitar and they probably don't think twice about it, if at all. Tell me about the work involved in booking and dealing with uh, club owners and rehearsing and all the stuff that goes on before you even get to that point. Well, that's a whole different unsung part of the music business. Everybody knows the music and the artists that they love, but I don't think they really know what goes into being that and, and putting on a show and the rehearsal time and the setup time and the breakdown time and all, all the stuff that goes into And booking, I would spend... This is back in the days where you had to pay for every phone call. And, and I would pay $400 bills every single month. And it was pulling me down. I wasn't even able to survive. Uh, my bills were so high. And people don't realize this, but you have to call a place five or six or seven or ten times before they'll give you a yes. Even a place that you don't even need to play, you know, you don't even need them and you still got to chase them for a yes. Unless you just say, you know, I'm not, I'm not playing there, forget it. You, you just can't give up. You have to put a long hours into booking and then things start to flow like anything else. It, it starts to move, you start accumulating gigs. But yeah, it's a lot of time consuming hard work. Yeah. Why don't we listen to an early collaboration of ours? This is from 1990. This is called Three Cheers for the Spider on the Rick Z Show. Thank you. 
Zurich Gears. writing songs for decades now. Tell me about the feeling you get after having written a good song. Let's say you have no question in your mind that it's good. What happens? Well, I, it makes me very happy. <laughs> it doesn't, doesn't happen all the time. Sometimes I'm questioning, is this any good? But when I really know it's good, and, and all my criteria is for good, is, is that I said what it is I really want to get out. Uh, I really want to say it. And I, I, if I feel I, I've done it, then I I feel it's a good song for me. There is no better feeling, I don't think, that I can think of of anything that I experience in life that compares to the feeling that you've written a great song. It's exhilarating because it's very difficult to write a song and you, you labor over stuff. I find that the, the best songs are the ones that just kind of come to you and almost write themselves. But whether you struggled over it for months and then finally got it right or it just came to you all at once. Either way, it's exhilarating to, to have a finished song that you'll have forever. You can play anytime you want, and it expresses how you feel, and then you get to play it and, and feel that feeling again. Uh, there's nothing like writing a, a great song. There's nothing like it. You've been making albums and recording for many years. Tell me about your first studio experience. What was that like? Well, it was very exciting and daunting because even though by today's standards, the equipment was pretty substandard, back then everything was huge on all these levers and dials and buttons. And I thought there's no way I'm going to be able to navigate on my own, not realizing that you learn slowly over time. But that first session was, it was scary, but it was so exciting because I still remember hearing my voice and my guitar coming back through the big speakers during the playback the very first time and I sounded like 50 feet tall you know and it sounded like a record already to me it sounded like 
the music I grew up listening to. Uh, it sounded big and full, like it does when you record in the studio. I'd never heard my music that way before, and it was astonishing and addicting. And I, I wanted to move my bed into the studio and li live there for now on. Like Yoko Ono. L like <laughs> Yoko Ono. Yeah. I would have definitely uh, done it if, if I was able to. I wanted more. I wanted to live in that world where I sounded that way. It's absolutely intoxicating when, when you hear that because all of a sudden now you think, well, that's how it's done. You know, you just yeah. you, you you have these quality microphones and quality people working and it's it's maybe it's it's attainable. I can do this. Well, you, you must relate to it, too. The very first time you heard your drums coming back through those big speakers, you, you'd probably never heard them that way before. It was absolutely intoxicating. Yeah. And uh, I I still think it's it's my favorite thing to do. Uh, what was it like to hear your song finally played on the radio? I'm trying to remember the first time I heard it. You would think I'd remember the very first time I heard my song on the radio, um, but I don't really. But I do have a, a vague impression. It's always exciting, even now, but it was particularly exciting. I never got to make an album like a vinyl record. I always wanted to do that because growing up, I held those things in my hand so many times and dreamed about having one of my own. By the time I started recording, CDs were coming about and I never did make a vinyl record. So I, I kind of liken that to the experience of hearing your song on the radio. It's like, you've listened to the radio your whole life. All your favorite songs were on the radio and wow, and there I am on the radio. I felt like I was part of some club. Bob Dylan was once asked if he would consider doing a comedy album by somebody, to which he replied, Every album I've ever made has been a comedy album. <laughs> what, what role does humor play in your songwriting? Oh, that's a good question. I have an interesting relationship with comedy material. I, I still love to write it. It's like writing a joke. Sit down and try to write a joke that somebody's going to laugh at. It, it's a challenge to do that. I usually have a writing partner for, for this, but I, I've written plenty of songs on my own that are funny. And to be honest with you, that started when I was about 15, and I was in play practice for some play. And I would bring my guitar because there's a lot of downtime when you, you do plays and stuff. And I would entertain my friends with funny songs that I would write at home. And I think I started writing those because if somebody laughed at me, if I played a song for somebody and they laughed, well, they're supposed to laugh. So, you know, it, in a way, it was a failsafe. It was like a, a, a blanket I'd wrap around me to protect myself. Nobody was, you, nobody's too critical of you when when you play a funny song they're only going to be critical if you write a serious song so it kind of poked a hole in, in the whole idea of being a songwriter I, I didn't have to really be taken too seriously although i wanted to be why exactly do you write songs do you do it to express yourself or catharsis or healing from a, a traumatic experience or how does that work for you all the above i mean it's, it's just how i choose to express myself as long as I can remember even when I was seven or eight years old it was important to me to express myself through writing a song and it may have been me just pounding on a toy toolbox or something and singing a melody or plucking one string on a guitar and singing a, a little melody line I, I don't know how advanced my songs were when I was you know seven or eight but I had that inclination to want to write something and I remember being fascinated with songs hearing stuff on the radio and thinking how did they do that it didn't just show up it didn't just materialize out of nowhere somebody had to sit down and come up with that how do you do that and as long as I remember even as a, a very small child I wanted to know 
how do you do that? I still want to know how you do that. There is really no answer to that question, but it certainly was a, a strong fascination of mine, very young. And yet the general public thinks that song is just appear or you just appear on stage and these things, you know, there's not hours and hours and hours of planning to the very last detail. Yeah, and that's okay because that's what you want. You want the finished product to be something that just materializes in front of somebody. And, and if somebody has the impression that it's just being whipped off off the cuff and just, uh, just shows up in their ear, that's great. You know, nobody has to bother themselves with maybe the anguish you went through to write it or record it. It's not, a, it's not about that uh, for them. It's about the enjoyment and the uh, inspiration that music brings. So tell me about playing in a band versus being a solo artist. What are some of the challenges and what are some of the differences? Very different, I find. It's a little bit more intimate when I play just acoustic. I feel like I have to say more to the audience. My personality has to come through more. When you play with a band, I feel insulated. You know, you're back behind the microphone and you have people around you. You're, you know, playing music. It's, a, it's louder. I made sure it was louder. <laughs> <laughs> you can smooth over awkward moments better when you're in a band. And it's different in a lot of ways. Physically, it's different. I had to learn to sing with a band. When I first started playing with a band, my voice could not get over a band enough to be heard. And I would start to have to sing louder. And I, I would actually write songs in higher keys, probably too high for me to sing, just so I could be heard over the band. But I wanted a band because it expressed all the different colors of the song that were important to me when I wrote it. I didn't want to just play acoustic. Uh, I've done that a lot out of necessity, but it was never what I wanted to do. I, I always wanted to be playing with a band. The Rick Z Band released one album and now the weather in the fall of 1994. What comes to mind when you think of that album and the huge number of appearances we did to promote that album? Well, I think of heaven and hell, you know. Uh, there's a song on the album, Heaven and Earth. Uh, that was dubbed Heaven and Hell by Gary Burke, uh, the man who produced it. And justifiably so, because it took us forever to mix that song. I think of that term a little differently applied to the entire album. The heaven part was just sheer creation, spending time with you and the other guys in the studio and making this album it was by far our best work at the time. It was a culmination of a bunch of demos that we had made and a bunch of new songs that we knew were going to be on the album. And we had a lot of material accrued at that point. And we, we made this album, 14 songs on the album. So the making of the album, I remember being difficult and challenging and fun. The promoting of the album is a different story. I think after a year and a half of doing it, you know, at a ridiculous rate, uh, all over the map. I mean, we worked hard to promote this album, and I think it burned us out a, a bit. You know, night after night after night, and the traveling, and every kind of weather. I think And Now the Weather, is, it really, as a title, represents the ridiculous weather we traveled through to make the money to, to finish the album. So I remember the difficulties of playing in the city, and playing at on a Monday at midnight to four people, and... and hoping that if we pool our money together, we might have enough uh, for a hamburger at the diner yes. on the way home. Those were the days for sure. Th those were the <laughs> days, but that's what you did. If you wanted to promote your music, that's what you did in those mm -hmm. days. And I'm very proud of uh, the work that we did. 
But I look back now and I think, sometimes I think, oh, what a waste of time, you know? Mm-hmm. And other times I think it honed our skills, it made us the band that we were. So it, mm-hmm. it's heaven and hell. Let's hear a track from And Now the Weather. This is Let's Do Something Crazy here on The Rick Z Show. is you can you can do good work you can do great work and still fly under the radar yeah i left the band in the spring of 97 that was the beginning of a couple of 
challenging years for you, including your battling voice issues and other things. Was there any point at which you thought about maybe giving up music and trying something else? Yeah, uh, there was. I mean, I ne- I'm not sure I ever seriously was ready to do that, but I thought I, w- I was going to have to start thinking that way because when I lost my voice, I could not sing at all. I could speak. I, I, I think I had a little trouble with my speaking voice cracking a lot or something, but music, I, I couldn't sing it at all for three years. Somewhere in there, I realized that this may be permanent and may be all over. Friends of mine would say, well, you can still do things. Uh, you, you could produce for other people. You could still write songs. I didn't want any of that. I, I felt like I didn't want half of what I set out to get. I'd rather just start with a different field and have it all in that field. Uh, I'm kind of an all or nothing guy when it, when it comes to stuff like that. And I like producing stuff. That's a fun challenge too. And, and I'll always write for myself, even if I don't put the material out there. That is a given. But I didn't want to have that kind of a musical career. That's not what I set out to do. I'd rather walk away from the whole thing and, and start over with something else. So it was a scary time because I, I did not want to walk away from this. I'd put a lot of time into it, and, and it's what I love. So Why do you think the band ultimately broke up? <sighs> wow, uh, that's a tough question. It's a combination of things. We were getting older. We had put so much time and effort into the band, all of us equally, our blood, sweat, and tears. It really saw very little reward, especially financially. The band's priorities were starting to change. There's only so many knocks you can get without saying maybe we should disband, regroup, and do something else. Uh, There were personal issues within the band uh, as everybody's priorities started to change. I was getting divorced. You were getting married. There were girlfriends involved. and I should have married you. (laughs) Well, the band may have lasted a, a Less time. <laughs> but I do appreciate the sentiment. You're not my type. It wouldn't, it wouldn't have worked. Well, as it is, the, I think the band lasted longer than my marriage. So Yeah, I don't know why. I th- a combination, a, a per- personality growth and a development of our own personal lives and the, the changes that come with that, me losing my voice. John said to me at one point, it's not so much the problems with your voice that I don't like when we go out and do a gig. It's the way you handle the problems with your voice. And I thought about that later, and he was right. I'm sure I was unpleasant to be around because I was very angry at that time, and I didn't know how to handle it. We had had an opportunity to go on this tour in Asia, and I knew that if it didn't happen, the band wouldn't last because it would be the final knock on the head that we couldn't take. And sure enough, wouldn't you know it, the Asian stock market crashed overnight. Pacific Rim, which was his company that was going to send us over there. And we were well-practiced and ready to go. I even had luggage uh, that I just bought. That company folded and that was it. We were done. And I knew that was going to be the last nail in the coffin. And sure enough, it was. In keeping with some of these uh, very happy questions... (laughs) (laughs) what keeps you going during the lean times when the phone's not ringing and gigs are falling through or getting canceled like that Uh, just stupidity you know uh, and habit you know I, I, (laughs) i don't know what else to do this is what i do this is what i love and this is what i work at and and learn about and strive to get better so in the lean times when the phone's not ringing and I can't find a lot of gigs and it's all cyclical, it's happened many times, you just put your head down and do the best you can and try to stay creative. And I usually will 
instigate some kind of a project at that point because if I have a project to work on, I can work on it anywhere. I don't need a gig. So you got to try to reinvent yourself a little bit. And thank God I have a lot of interests in a lot of different types of music where I could say, you know what, maybe I'll do a blues project or something today. And, you know, when you're a musician, you got to kind of dream it up and then make it happen. Well, you've played all over the Hudson Valley, all different kinds of places as well, up and down the East Coast, even out in Nashville. I know you played out there. Mm -hmm. Um, Hundreds and hundreds of appearances, is it ever predictable? Is it ever just a, ah, it's an average gig? Yeah, I mean, sometimes it's a job. You know, that's the reality of being a working musician is, you know, you're not going to feel like a rock star every day, maybe hardly ever. The high-profile gigs may be few and far between, but you got to give your all to every single one. You never know who's watching, and you want to entertain people. You can't ever forget why you're really doing this. First, you're trying to please yourself, and then if you pass that test, then you want to pass that music on to as many ears as you can. And there shouldn't be any average gigs, but the reality is that there are, and there are some bad gigs, and you got to roll with those punches. You're still a professional. You, you want to go out there and always do the best job you can. Do you have a favorite live gig that you've played? Ever? Ever. Oh. Does one stand out to you? Like, this is the one. This is the one that I'm going to remember for forever. There's a handful that definitely stand out, but I don't think I could choose one specifically. And there's two different kinds of standout gigs. There's the ones that were high-profile gigs where everything went well, where you open for somebody great, and just things went great. And then there's those other gigs where hardly anyone saw you, but you know you did a great job. You, you know this was a really good gig. Too bad there weren't a lot of people there to see it. And other times, there's a lot of people there to see it, but it's just in an average place somewhere, nothing to distinguish it from a lot of other gigs. So I try not to favor any too much. Once you favor one, wow, that was amazing. We were on top of the world. You're going to do a terrible gig the next night. So, (laughs) you know, plenty of those. You try to look at them all the same. If you're playing in a palace somewhere and the next day you're playing, you know, in a shoe store. (laughs) <laughs> you know, you got to look at them the same way. It's it's a gig. It's a legitimate gig. You're there to play and to make people happy if you can. I hope they have my size. <laughs> okay, this next question has sort of two sides to it. Okay. The first one is, have you ever had an experience where a live show you played turned a bad day around? Absolutely. I, I've had terrible days where I just felt like I'm not getting anywhere and this is terrible and I'm just, or I'm not even thinking about my music. I just have a bad day for other reasons. And I do a gig that happens to be really good. I forget about everything else. That's a double-edged sword because I'm too close to the gigs in a way. If I go out and I do a great gig and there's nobody there to see me or nobody really notices how good the gig is, I, I usually go home pretty happy. And if I go and I do a gig that I'm not satisfied with, but the night was successful and everybody left happy, it kind of irks me when I go home a a little bit. But I've gotten better about that. Like, I've come to the conclusion that if people are happy uh, and and they had a good time, then then I'm okay with it, even if I don't feel it was my best gig. I'm I'm trying to strike up that balance, but I'm so tied into whether I felt like I did well or not that it it could ruin my week. (laughs) But it can make my week too, and, and and that's not necessarily a good thing. I don't want to, I don't think it's healthy to be too close to it. You have to have perspective whether you do a good job or, or not such a good job, and, and you have to accept it either way pretty equally. Okay, here's the other side of the coin. Have you ever played a live show 
that turned a good day to absolute crap. No question about it. There may have been more of those. Not lately. We played the bottom line one time, Dan, you and I together. I remember. And it was a wonderful evening. It was exciting. We had a dressing room. We were like headliners. It was awesome. And it took a long time to get that gig. But I don't feel we played that well, to be honest with you. I wish we could do it over again. Not that we wasted the opportunity exactly, but it was kind of a downer. I I wouldn't say this is an example of how, you know, a good day was turned into a bad day. But sometimes when you have a gig built up in your mind that this is going to be great and then you don't succeed on a great level and you feel you, you should have done better, it does bring you down a little bit. And I've, I've had a lot of moments like that. Describe what it's like to have to assemble a band and find people to play on your studio tracks. Do you find that players are generally professional and show up prepared to play or what? Not always. That's a very good question. I'm very lucky because over the years, I've amassed quite a list of great players that I can call on and I know who I can rely on. And I call up people such as yourself, Carl Allwire, and there are dozens of great musicians. When I hire them, I know exactly what I'm going to get. However, there are times where you hire somebody, even if they're a really good musician, and they don't do their homework, and they know they should, and they just got lazy or whatever, and you're paying them, and they're not doing their jobs. You do run into that from time to time. I try never to be that guy. And a lot of the people that I work with will never be that musician. But some of them will, especially live, because there's not a lot of musicians, no matter how good they are, that are willing to, you know, learn 30 songs for 100 bucks. <laughs> you know, they don't <laughs> want to work that hard for that kind of money. They're going to slum it, and they know they're good enough to get by. And they can get by, and they are good enough to get by. But they're not going to excel. Personally, for me... It's my reputation on the line. For one thing, I don't want to go into a situation where I don't feel prepared. That doesn't make me feel good. I, I, that makes me feel insecure and like I'm floundering up there. I, I like to know exactly what I'm doing. Other musicians, not so much. They, it doesn't bother them, I guess. If somebody hired me for $100 and I had to learn 30 songs, I'd probably learn the 30 songs. But that's just who I want to be. Not everybody feels that way. And, and by the way, I just want to say something about the Rick Z Band. Me, you, and uh, John Coghill, Carl Allwire. I think we were extremely fortunate to find each other and have this band because we all had the identical ethic when it came, or very close anyway, to uh, performing music, practicing music. We had a certain standard. You didn't have to worry so much about doing a good job, knowing your parts. You didn't have to babysit each other. You could focus on your own stuff and know that the other guys were doing that too. And man... Still to this day, that is rare. I thought that's what musicians were. I thought everybody was like that until I started to work beyond the Rixie band with other musicians. And I realized, no, no, that's not universal. <laughs> it's not true across the board. And that's when I realized how lucky we were to find each other and, and all have that fire under our under our butts. Oh, I quite agree. I quite agree. I know uh, I was listening to an interview with Carlos Santana. Somebody was saying, you know, what do you look for in people... Uh, that are in your band, he said, someone I don't have to babysit. Mm-hmm. I, I totally get that. Me too. And uh, beyond skill, Mick Fleetwood also said, when all is said and done, personality goes a long way. And we really hit the jackpot with uh, with the Rick Z band, John and Carl and those people. No doubt about it. I, I'm more convinced of that now than ever before because of the experiences I've had since the Rick Z band. Mm-hmm. What role does a drummer play in a band to you? I mean, do you think that songwriters have a special chemistry with their drummers? Like, 
Billy Joel, Liberty DeVito, Elton John, Nigel Olsen, and James Taylor, and Russ Kunkel and Carlos Vega, those kinds of... Things. Well, first of all, drummers are always there to host your podcast. <laughs> that, that's really important to me. I wouldn't work with anyone that wasn't willing to do that. You know, it's really interesting, songwriters and the relationship with a drummer that they work with. The people that you mentioned, those relationships, Billy Joel, Liberty DeVito, Nigel Olsen, and Elton John, those are great examples. Those are extreme examples. I don't think you see that all the time with songwriters and their drummers. It's just the perfect marriage between the songwriter and the instrumentalist. I always saw you and I that way, Dan. In fact, not that I'm comparing myself to Billy Joel or you to Liberty DeVito. Please don't do that. No, no, I would never <laughs> do that. We ha have that kind of relationship. You know, Billy and Liberty have had a, a relationship over time where they know each other's musical abilities and they know each other personally and uh, there's a camaraderie on stage and things like that. That reminds me of you and I, but also you had a certain bombastic nature about your playing that was very Liberty DeVito-like, so I always made that analogy. Well, so now we're talking about people that are known. How are your views altered by meeting people in the industry? I know you've met people who are named players on albums, but also some people known to the general public. Well, two things about that. One is they say, never meet your heroes, because you might be disappointed. I haven't exactly been disappointed. I've had the chance to meet some people I admire a lot and that have had an influence on me and have had primarily good experiences with it. But I have worked in the studio with a couple of named people, and realized that what's in a name? <laughs> you know, <laughs> sometimes true. you see them for the, the flawed musicians that they are, and it's surprising. And by flawed, I don't mean they don't have talent or they don't have a reputation that they deserve, but you know, you could have a bad day or you could have nothing to add to a song, and you realize these are people, these are musicians or people. And the they other, are? Well, <laughs> yeah. I'm surprised. Uh, on the other side of the coin, you also see that they're just regular people. If you get a kind of behind the backstage look of an artist that you like, talent separates us, but we're all people in the end. Well, okay, I'll just try and high along.
little girl from far behind Like to roll the dice or blow my mind She's got my heart all up in a bind She's gonna roll it like a wheel Roll it down Leaving me to rumbling, rumbling, tumbling, tumbling, tumbling Rumbling, rumbling, tumbling Rumbling, rumbling, tumbling, tumbling, tumbling Rumbling, rumbling, tumbling Tumbling way down here We've come to the end. I, I never know how to end. Do we have to end? To, you know what's what's next for the with the Rick Z show? A, a, ask Rusty if we need to end. He's, <laughs> he's the producer. He's, is he running out of hard drive space? I, I, I don't Probably. really know. But what's uh, what's next for the Rick Z show? For the show, well, we're always trying to get the show better. We just implemented a new theme not too long ago. Theme song. People were thrilled that I got rid of yes. the. <laughs> Rusty being one of them. I'm just learning this now. Uh, traitor. No. Um, we have some new equipment. We're starting to get some really good high-profile guests. We're looking for ways to expand the show out into the world. This is just the beginning, and I can't wait to dig in with more. It's continuing to get better and better, and I love it. I love doing it. Well, that's great. Well, thank you for being on your own show. <laughs> Thanks for being the host of my own show. It would have been very difficult. Not impossible, but it would have been difficult to be the host while I was also the guest. We've we've tried stuff like that before, but varying degrees of success. Yes, yeah. Rusty's such a good editor; he could have made it work. But this made Rusty's job a lot easier yes, that, that, you. that you hosted. So thank you. <laughs> no problem. You're listening to the Rick Z Show. <laughs>